Mr. Cheney, are you ready to take the oath? I am. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, James Danforth Quayle. I, Michael Richard Pence. I, Spiro Theodore Agnew. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. do solemnly swear. Welcome to episode 10 of Running Mates, our part two of the 2000 election contest between Al Gore's running mate, Joe Lieberman, and George W. Bush's running mate, Dick Cheney. If you missed the part one of this episode, I highly recommend you go back and listen to part one first, where we talk about how this election unfolded, why the candidates picked their respective running mates, and went through our Bush alternative picks for Cheney. If you're all caught up, let's get into it. As always, I'm your host, Lars Emerson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Levito. Hello, hello. This week, we're going to go through our picks for Gore instead of Joe Lieberman and build to our big conclusions for this election from hell. So here we go. Let's get down with Election 2000, Cheney v. Lieberman, Part 2. In Part 1, Mike and I had a wide range of insider picks for George W. Bush. We felt that a relatively fresh governor on the national scene probably needed a more experienced hand at his side. So we suggested folks like Florida Senator Connie Mack, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Ridge, Missouri Senator John Ashcroft, Ohio Rep John Kasich, and then some more game-changing oriented picks like Elizabeth Dole and Maine Senator Olympia Snow. We mostly focused on geographic advantage too, trying to pry away electoral votes at that margin because of the fact that Bush only won the Electoral College by two votes. So does the incumbent Vice President Al Gore need someone as experienced or need more of a game-changing outsider? Or since he just needs to win one tiny state to throw the election to him, does he just need to pick geographically? Let's see what we ended up with in our main act, getting right to it. Here are our picks for Gore for who he should have chosen over Lieberman. I'll take first. My number five pick for Gore is Richard Bryan, a Nevada senator, former governor of Nevada, retiring this very year, 2000. He was chair of the Senate Ethics Committee in the mid-90s, which perhaps helps Gore in the same way that he thought Lieberman might, by being morally upstanding and distant from the Clinton administration's moral mistakes. Maybe a bit of a do-nothing, but someone with state experience and ethics experience coming from a state that went for Bush by 3.5% and would have thrown the election to Gore can't hurt. That's my simple case for Richard Bryan. Yeah, I mean, I get that. I just worry that... <laughs> I don't know. It just it just seems like very boring. <laughs> sure. Which maybe is what you need when you just went through like a, a political... Well, you, Gordon go through it, but when the person you're trying to succeed just went through a political sex scandal. Do you know he was an opponent of uh, SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence? I did. It's the most like Nevada thing that you could be. <laughs> it's just a weird... That's weird. It's just, well, because he knows where they actually are. They're in yeah, Area 51, yeah, exactly. so he, that's why it's a waste of money. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess it made the, the Nevada thing makes sense. So this is, this is an interesting question, though. In an election this close, th- is, is having like kind of an anonymous running mate too high? Do you feel like you need someone with a more of a value, who gives you like more than one state? It gives you more than one thing. I don't know. I don't know what Lieberman gave Gore that he didn't already have. Mm-hmm. And I think Brian maybe gives Gore something mm-hmm. that he doesn't have. Picking Lieberman did not make Gore win Connecticut, did not make Gore win New York. Mm-hmm. Or even, you know, Washington. Like, I'm just trying to think of states where, like, Lieberman would have appealed. Mm-hmm. I think Brian at least appeals maybe in the Southwest. And maybe picking someone not from the Northeast and not the incumbent vice president maybe appeals to the Midwest. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's, like, a 
We picked someone from like Middle America. Middle America bordering California. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't feel. <laughs> I, I get what you mean. This yeah. is my yeah. number five pick for an entirely state reason. Yeah, as yeah. I see yours is yes as well. i chose the other senator from nevada harry reed not yet the democratic elder that he would become not yet democratic senate leader comes from of course a close state in nevada he's had success in some tough races in nevada so he, he he's a battler he's also a former boxer he knows that he knows how to get all that done why i chose him instead of brian is that he has this kind of religious bent to his politics He's a, he's a pretty devout Mormon that I think, you know, maybe helps him with, with quote-unquote values voters, especially in the face of Bush, who's, who's very religious. You know, maybe that does become a bit of a problem, Corp, because as recent as 1999, Reed is in support of overturning Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe he can make that change faster if, if he's promised the vice presidency. I think the moral play is a legitimate thing here. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it's kind of the same thing I went with with Bryant. I mean, t- to be fair, he is already Senate Minority Whip. He mm-hmm. is in the leadership. True. He's not, Yeah. the average American probably didn't know who he was at the time mm-hmm. like they do now. The more I think about it, I think the more I like this. The religious play is like the like morally upstanding play. Is Reed, historically, has gotten, he's kind of gotten like a lot of shit for being like a democratic mormon by by both his own party and republican mormons Mm. most mormons being republicans but he's always like kind of handled it super on point in like uh, in almost like a pete Buttigieg judge way actually Mm. where you know reed kind of had this saying it's easier to be a good member of the church and a democrat than to be a good member of the church and a republican and it's like Mm. democrats have always kind of been this party of helping people trying to like do the right thing Mm -hmm. I, i don't understand why you think my values are contradictory to that, I think I'm actually fulfilling this better than a lot of these people who want to cut welfare from these Mm -hmm. people, right? There's like a way to seize both, not the religious right, but the like quiet religious Mm -hmm. and the fiscally liberal, right? Mm -hmm. The thing I do think is kind of weird is Harry Reid is kind of to the right of Al Gore. Mm -hmm. That's just interesting. Yeah. 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 Nevada. Nevada. Important state. Yeah. If Gore would have won it. Yes. Cool. Moving to my number four a nearby state, I went with Bill Richardson from New Mexico. He's the Secretary of Energy and former ambassador for the United Nations under Clinton, and he was a representative from New Mexico for 14 years prior. He's got a Latino background, and this maybe props up your numbers in the must-win New Mexico, which was the second closest state in this election, which Gore carries by 0.06% of the vote. It also probably helps you in Nevada and the Southwest at large. I do think there's a regional thing here. Colorado and Arizona, you know, the swing states they become, they're not really in this election, but Nevada definitely is. And yeah, I I think he's very experienced in foreign policy, charismatic. He's like the same age as Gore, if you're still trying to keep on that, like that new Democrat, like middle-aged Democrat vibe. You know, he did a ton of work on like Native American issues, trade. He, he was actually nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize three times mm. while he was a congressman because he would go on these like diplomatic missions to advance human rights worldwide. That's my Bill Richardson theory. Also, a lot of Latin voters in Florida. Yeah. Though, it's a different, of course, community that's not a monolith and, and votes differently in Florida than they tend to in the Southwest. Yeah. Well, you already know how I feel about double dipping in administration picks. So, I do. like, I don't really love it for that reason. I also think you could get an early version of what her slash his emails. He was involved in a controversy where there was a employee at the Department of Energy who was accused of being a Chinese spy, but it turns out it was actually just 
Chinese. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> uh -oh. And uh, all of that, which, and like, you know, th this guy did nothing wrong. Actually, he's a very sad story. He's like in solitary confinement for like nine months. is a disaster. But like, he was basically accused of not complying, Richardson, that being, accused of like not complying with this investigation, like possibly like disappearing a computer in a hard drive. So I've seen Bill Richardson speak in public and he seems like, I, like, I want to hang out with Bill Richardson. He seems like a really fun guy. He, I also just feel like it just seems like stuff follows him around. I don't know. I, I'm not accusing him of anything, but like Obama was going to name him as Secretary of Commerce, but they decided against it because they thought it was going to be some scandal that would come to light. I don't know that anything like that would happen in 2000. He just, he just worries me for that reason. And there were allegations of corruption against him in, I believe, like 2012. Yeah. There's some smoke. Yeah. Not that that means there's fire. True. True. Yeah, and, and I do think you bring up a valid point. It's like you are coming out of an administration where there has been not just a lot of smoke, but a lot of fire. Yeah. And here's someone, not the same kind of fire, mm -hmm. <laughs> but there is something going on there. I just, yeah, this is just a raw state play. Mm -hmm. Fair. I, New Mexico I mean, was close. It was very, it was very, very close. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe you're worried, and Bush will win New Mexico in 2004, mm -hmm. and maybe you're worried that Bush, being from the neighboring Texas, has a play in New Mexico. If I were Al Gore going into this election before I knew what would happen, it makes more sense to me to pick someone like Bill Richardson than it does Joe Lieberman. Yeah. Okay. I went with Evan Bayh, who is the former governor of Indiana at this point, and but a current senator. Um, he was the first Democrat to serve as Indiana governor in 20 years upon his election. Um, he left office with an 80% approval rating. He cruised to victory in the subsequent Senate race. Uh, he was pro-choice, but was also a vocal supporter of capital punishment while he was governor, which is an interesting mix. As Bill Maher puts it, pro-death. That's not an endorsement of Bill Maher, by the way. I can't <laughs> stand him. This is an interesting thing he said once. Like, the one interesting thing he's ever said. Um, like his father, who was Birch by, who I believe I chose for someone a few episodes ago... He's actually more moderate than Birch by probably, but still like very socially liberal. He was a supporter of affirmative action. He voted to add sexual orientation to like hate crimes, you know, committing a crime against someone for being gay or lesbian or what have you would have been a hate crime. Also, like, and this happened more, I think, during the Bush administration, but was very articulate about like why Bush's economic plans were like not a good idea. Hmm. How Bush's like increase in spending and his decrease in taxes just like was not going to work out. And so, you know, I think he worked well on the campaign trail there. Indiana, not a very close state at all. Bush wins it pretty easily. But it is right next to Ohio. It is a Midwestern state. Um, we're always trying to get those Midwestern voters. Maybe, like, you know, like Bill Richardson, it's, you're not picking someone directly from the state, but from around it, that, that would help. And basically picking up any extra state in that region would, would hand core the presidency. Well, he already wins. He already wins most of them. <laughs> basically picking up either Indiana or Ohio. Yes. He's not going to pick up Indiana. Indiana goes fifteen percent for yeah, Bush. Yeah, and we talked. We did talk about his father. You picked him as your number four pick in seventy six for Carter. Mm -hmm. I do think this is maybe, with the exception of our number one choice, I do think this is the charismatic pick for Gore. Is I do think he's like a charismatic young guy, nice to look at, and. Uh, this is a sexier ticket than <laughs> Gore Lieberman, is I guess what I'm trying sure. to say. Sure. I don't think this puts Gore over the top. I don't think this flips Ohio or Indiana. Yeah. I do think it's better than Lieberman in that I don't think Lieberman put anything over the top. Mm -hmm. Is the play here just that he's different? He's different, and this is the quote I was looking for about, and this was when Bush was 
already president, but this, so this is what he said. He said, What concerns me most about President Bush's tax and budget proposals is that they threaten to undermine the foundation of the 90s prosperity, placing the virtuous cycle created by fiscal responsibility with a vicious cycle of deficits and debt, rising interest rates and disinvestment. His proposals constitute a narrow ideological agenda, not an effective economic strategy, completely fail to grasp the realities of the new economy, many requirements for economic success in the 21st century. Being able to package that message, granted it came years after the election, onto the campaign trail as like a persuasive why Gore instead of Bush. It's like, I remember when John McCain, in the 2008 election when of course John McCain was running for president, I had an academic team tournament on Princeton University's campus and there was a lot of get out the vote Obama people there and they were selling shirts that said like, I could be McCain's Econ 101 professor. And I think there's a play there in, as far as like being like, I could be Bush's Econ 101 professor. You, you can paint Bush as almost like this political like dilettante. This guy who's just doing what his dad was doing, who, who belongs just in like a boardroom instead of an actual governor's mansion or White House. Whereas Evan Bai knows what he's talking about. He's run a state for eight years and he's been elected to the Senate. He knows how everything works. He's also a legacy. I, I think I think he just helps. I think he's a good like, he helps shape a message. Yeah, I, I, th- I think he's very, he's very eloquent, strong. This is like a charisma choice, mm-hmm. not a state choice, which, which I appreciate. I like that you mixed it up. Yeah. Cool. My number three, I went with Dick Celeste, the governor of Ohio in the 80s. He was also the former director of the Peace Corps, and now he is ambassador to India. He's maybe the biggest Democratic name in Ohio at the time, which isn't saying much considering how Republican it had become. There's, the Democratic slate in Ohio is not very strong mm-hmm. right now. But when he was governor all those years ago, he promoted minorities and women in government in Ohio. He improved education and childcare in the state. And yeah, even though he's from this kind of older era than Gore or even kind of Clinton, I think there's still an optimism and like forward momentum there. It's not the same two middle-aged Democrats that we've kind of been pushing, but it's like, you know, the old guard and the new guard, or maybe the medium guard, if you mm-hmm. will. And I think there's a weird play with his ambassadorship to India, right? And like looking forward is like India is a huge economy. The Democrats have suddenly become a party that's very focused on free trade and international cooperation. Maybe you can make a place like India is clearly like a rising power, perhaps more visibly so than China in this time. And yeah, Ohio also, like we've talked about, went for Bush by 3.5%. Make Bush devote resources in Ohio. You know, Bush doesn't need to devote any resources to Connecticut. Make him fight it out in Ohio and maybe draw him away from Florida. Mm-hmm. Maybe this this keeps Bush from making one extra trip to Florida and that <laughs> sets Gore over the top. Maybe. I don't know. The India thing feels like a little bit of a stretch, but I do think there's maybe also a play where you think of Ohio as like a manufacturing center and perhaps right. the state that would be hurt by something like NAFTA and the general like internationalist approach American government. And you have Dick Celeste, the guy who now understands both things, right? And yeah. in, in, think about like jobs being outsourced to India, I'm sure. Mm. I think maybe there's a play there where he can bridge the gap between middle America and the rest of the world. He is a Midwesterner who will give Midwesterners a fair shake in the new world economy, but he's also cognizant of the realities of it. Right, and I, I, I don't think the Democrats have ever found anyone like that. No. Even even in like the Obama years mm-hmm. or like the modern era, there's there's always been kind of this weird divide. Mm. Do I think free trade is an issue that people other than myself affirmatively <laughs> vote for candidates for? Not really. But I think there's a way to like phrase. There's there's a common like perception that we embraced free trade, which I think was a good thing to do, mm. and it cost a lot of people work. And yeah, I think Dick Celeste can kind of toe that balance with Al Gore. It's like we have to look to the new century. This is the reality, but there are ways that we can square this with what we know mm. and how we can make it more amiable for everyone. 
Yeah. Well, for my number three pick, I went with Jean Shaheen. She's the very popular governor of New Hampshire, which is, you know, like a very purple state that Bush barely won and would have, small as it is, would throw the election into Gore's favor had it he won it. She last won re-election 66% to 31% in 1998. That, that's a big margin. It, it's, it's another female candidate, which I feel we've been talking about a lot this episode. It helps expand the tenor of the party, chips away at that, that margin. It, I also think that like there's something to be said about, you know, Gore's been in Washington for a while. He's, he's very much an insider. Yeah. And and Jean Shaheen is is more of like a New New Hampshire is probably the most like one of the most directly democratic states in the country. In little d. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The the ratio of representative to voter is ridiculous. In the state house, yeah, in it's the like state one house. to two thousand. Yeah. Yeah. And so you know, I, and I think part of what what Republicans are able to do in this era is paint the Democrats as the people over there in their ivory towers. Maybe Shaheen helps dispel that a little bit by being a more like boots on the ground governor politician. Yeah. I also have Shaheen for my number two pick, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's the first woman elected governor of the state. And it only goes for Bush by just a little bit above 1%. I, I also think having a woman governor on the ticket seems like a natural compliment to Al Gore and where the Democrats are going. You know, we've kind of thrown a lot of shit at Lieberman from being from New England. And, like, this is not a region that's competitive at all. New Hampshire has always been weird, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of view it as, like, the least northeastern northeastern state. Mm-hmm. There's something that feels very, like, Iowa about New Hampshire. Just because they have the two earliest <laughs> primary slash caucuses? Yes. There's something that feels very Indiana about New it, Hampshire. It, is, it feels like the most, like, rural of the New England state. Like, Even though you Vermont know, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's like, I, I think you think of, like, New England and you think of Harvard and the Kennedys. And lobster. And lobster. And, like, people, like, dudes wearing, like, sweaters tied around their necks. <laughs> And New Hampshire is just, like, very much not that. New Hampshire is, like... Guns tied around yeah, their belts. The, <laughs> yeah. Republicans paint Democrats as, like, these ivory tower people. Mm. And he's like, oh, they're the party of the, the Northeast. Mm. The, 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 they're all snooty and whatnot. But New Hampshire is not that at all. Mm-hmm. And there's a dash. There's just a dash of independence that's mm-hmm. very traditional and very conservative. Live free or die. Mm-hmm. Just like Al Gore wants to live free and clean mm-hmm. or die. Yeah. Sheen was also my number two, so who's yours? I had Dick Gephardt, who's the House Minority Leader, Congressman from Missouri. Uh, he's a f- superb fundraiser, a very experienced and successful fundraiser, who would help Gore in a very close Bush state. He has union ties that I feel like the new Democrats, like Clinton and Gore, they may have like sort of soured those relationships with things like NAFTA, and they're generally sort of more fiscally conservative positions. And he's also like a pro-life to pro-choice convert. So he can maybe help bring voters on that journey as well, or at least make them more comfortable voting for a pro-choice candidate. And he comes from a close state, you know, he's a name in the Democratic Party. He's he's on the front lines fighting against, like, the Republican Revolution era Republicans. So he, he's got that credibility going for him. And he's just been around a long time. He's experienced. And it just, it gives you just, like, a very, the resumes of Gore and Gephardt put together just look very good. A sitting VP and sitting minority leader, doesn't it feel a little too, like, in the beltway? It's pretty in the beltway. It's, it's a little swampy. A little bit. I mean, it's actually very swampy. It's very in the beltway. Mm-hmm. This is a very beltway ticket. Do you not think that Gore needs kind of an outsider? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't think it would have hurt him, but I, I guess I don't know that it's a prerequisite. I don't know that it is make or break insider outsider. You've you've picked two minority leaders for the Democrats as running mates for Gore here. There's something's going. I I had a tough time picking. I had a tough time finding good outsider Democrats basically. 
there the democratic bench at this point is just not very large and in that case you just double down on your big guns yeah i mean to be fair i have to go to like an ohio governor from right exactly <laughs> and i don't want to do that yeah I, I do think you make a good point trying to balance against the new democrat coalition mm-hmm. is something that's kind of worth considering it's kind of like what we talked about with uh, Dick Celeste. Mm. Dick Gephardt kind of feels like an 80s throwback to me. Mm. There's something almost like Jack Kempy about putting him on. That That's fair. Yeah, I don't know. He's more of like an 80s guy. Yeah, I, I guess so, but he's better than Joe Lieberman. <laughs> yeah, he is. All right, the number one person who could have changed everything. I went with Bob Graham, former governor of Florida and the current senator from Florida. This... Is like the most obvious pick in the book <laughs> for that very reason. We have now talked about him a couple times as a Clinton running mate uh, in the last few elections just because he was so beloved in, of all places, Florida. With an 83% approval rating, left as governor. We bring that up every time. It's a big deal. You know, he's also been reelected to the Senate a couple times here by pretty good margins. He's also a big name on the Senate Intelligence Committee, in case you are somehow worried that Gore lacks foreign policy and defense credentials, which apparently he was. And that's like a big reason he went with Lieberman. He was like, oh, well, Lieberman's mm. credentialed on like defense and foreign policy. It's like, you're the sitting vice president for eight years. How do you not think people <laughs> think you know that? Whatever. He's also responsible for the biggest environmental protection efforts in Florida's history, protection of the Everglades. You know, you're kind of hitting on Al Gore's big thing there. Education issues. Plus, his supporters call themselves graham crackers. What's not to love about this guy? And he looks good on a ticket with Al Gore. <laughs> Florida man, Bob Graham. Yeah, I think this is a pretty much a no-brainer. Yeah. Like, I don't understand why he didn't go with Bob Graham. Again, it's easy to sit here in 2020 and say, well, of course Gore should have picked somebody from Florida as his vice president. I also had him as number one, by the way. I don't think I firmly said that. But it, it just seems so obvious that that's what you would do. He just seems very qualified. It's like a very, I, I really have nothing else to say. No, he's, he's he, great. He hits on what on Gore's perceived weaknesses. He's very experienced. You know, he's been senator for a very long time. He was governor for eight years, obviously. He had two terms before that. So, yeah, I, I just don't see what, how, how you could take pretty much anybody else if, if you're doing this exercise. Like, I, I really have, like, nothing else to say. It would be borderline irresponsible not to pick Bob Grant, yes. knowing what we know yes. now and how successful the Bush administration was mm-hmm. in what the next eight years were. Uh, yeah, well, Al Gore, give us a call. <laughs> uh, as for trends in our Gore picks... Mostly regional state picks. Mm-hmm. I think that's the more obvious play for Gore than it is for Bush. It's like we're just trying to give Gore really just three electoral votes. Right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah, New Hampshire, Nevada, obviously Florida would all very much do that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, four electoral votes. Well, not. Throw it to the House one of, wins. One of the D.C. electors didn't vote for. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. There's a whole weird thing there. It should be 267 to 271 because someone didn't vote protesting voting is actually because of dc statehood well i'm not voting Mm. (laughs) because we're not a state which is ironic as hell (laughs) whatever yes okay (laughs) as for who gore actually considered the final six were massachusetts senator john Kerry, north carolina senator john edwards house minority leader dick gebhardt indiana senator evan bye new hampshire governor gene shaheen and of course joe lieberman we actually yeah we're pretty consistent there i Uh, thought about john Kerry. yeah Probably should have put Bob Graham on there. Mm-hmm. Yes, he should have. As for what happened to Joe Lieberman after all of this, he was actually up for re-election for his Senate seat the same year, which he won. After 9-11, he became increasingly hawkish. 
He supported the war in Iraq. He was heavily involved in the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. He then ran for president in 2004 as a Democratic hawk. He believed that he was getting what he liked to call Joe-mentum, uh, <laughs> but he did not, and he did not win any contests. He ran for re-election to the Senate in 2006, but he lost the Democratic primary. Then he ran as an independent in the general and won. In 2008, he endorsed John McCain for president, and he spoke during the Republican National Convention. Lieberman is also widely reported to have been on McCain's shortlist for vice president, perhaps even McCain's first choice for vice president in 2008. Lieberman retired at the end of his fourth term, and then he continued spending time bugging his once fellow Democrats, doing things like advocating against Obama's Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran deal, and then reportedly was interviewed by President Trump for the position of FBI director to replace James Comey. He did, to be fair, endorse Hillary Clinton in 2016. Lieberman is just quite a character, a rabble rouser, definitely a hawk and maverick, kind of in the vein of McCain, but on the Democratic side. Plains where they got along. Yeah. Cool. Let's speed round. Any any fun names? I mean, these aren't fun, but these are people I considered. And I thought of John Engler, who's the governor of Michigan. For Bush, Michigan, of course, would go for Gore, and you know he, he also had like a very he invested a lot in, in things like education and healthcare. So maybe compassion conservative choice too. I just thought they were ultimately more interesting choices hmm. for Bush and Colin Powell. I also thought about. Yeah, I, I think that in any other year, I actually think Colin Powell would be a pretty good pick for Bush. I just think that considering it's just so close, I, I don't know. I don't know that Powell gives Bush a state he doesn't already want. Yeah. For Gore, I wrote down Mel Carnahan, the guy who died in the plane yeah. crash that John Ashcroft still lost mm. to even though he was dead. Yeah. We we also were both talking about P. Dominici, who was senator from New Mexico oh, yeah. at the time. It was revealed years later that he had had an affair with Michelle Laxalt, who was the daughter of Paul Axel, senator from Nevada, and who I actually picked for Reagan in 1980. And actually, they would end up having a, a child out of wedlock who would become Adam Laxalt, who actually ran for governor of Nevada in 2018 and was attorney general of Nevada up until then, too. Uh, yeah, just probably thought that that would like come out. Yeah, <laughs> if, uh, if if he ends up running for vice president, like at the time of two thousand, there wasn't really anything, no, 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 no. But yeah, yeah, there's too much going on in the background there, and that's why I went with Richardson instead of him. Mm-hmm. I wrote down for Bush, <laughs> so I wrote down two hot takes: Bush Kemp. So we didn't like Kemp for Dole, but I actually don't hate Kemp for Bush. There's like a reiteration of like Reagan Bush. Except for this time, Kemp is Bush and Bush is Reagan. I'm sorry, say that again. <laughs> okay. We didn't like Dole Kemp last time like, no, at all, right? No. It felt too old. Mm. But I don't mind it this time because it's kind of like a reiteration of the Reagan-Bush thing. Except this time, Kemp is Bush and Bush is Reagan. Okay, I see what you mean. Because Bush is like the younger, more charismatic. And he needs like this older statesman from the party at his side. Yes, yes. I don't know. Could be fun. I like, I, I like it better than Dole Kemp, right? I don't know. I mean, I, if we're living in the same universe where Jack Kemp was also Bob Dole's running mate, I think it's kind of dumb. Yeah, it'd be a little weird. <laughs> and I think Jack Kemp would just be like, why would I, have, why would I do this again? <laughs> why am I here? <laughs> I also wrote down, you know who's governor of Florida? <laughs> Jeb Bush. You could have a Bush-Bush ticket. Like the joint sons avenging their father who was <laughs> killed by Bill Clinton in 92. Kind of baller, right? Yeah. And Florida. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like the this is going to take us to a dark place. I, I'm just like seeing like 
an Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump Jr. ticket. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh, it's coming. <laughs> in like 16 years or something. Like, I, I wonder like what would happen if like that, if it was like two related people running on a ticket together. I assume there's, I guess there's nothing illegal about it. As long as they're both eligible to be president. Which they both were. Yeah. There you go. Um, all right. Our big conclusion. If you could change the running mate for the two candidates... Would you? Yeah, I, I, I would. <laughs> I get I get what Cheney gives Bush. I don't know that it really matters. <laughs> I don't know that Cheney is like, like a well-known enough or thought enough about figure for him to lend the Bush campaign the credibility Bush needs. And obviously, if, from a strategic standpoint, it doesn't really give him anything regionally because it's Wyoming, it's, it's three votes, and it's as red as can be. Um, Joe Lieberman, yeah, I, again, this is all very easy to say with hindsight, but like, yeah, Gore needed more of like a regional play, and it's one of those things where it's just weird for me to think that Joe Lieberman was like a vice presidential candidate. Yeah. It just like, has to be like one of the weirder picks out there, and it's it's almost annoying to me too, because it's like, Gore should have been playing with like, I don't want to say like house money, but he should have really felt like he could have picked whoever he wanted for vice president, because he himself was already vice president. It's weird that Gore felt like he had to compensate for something yeah in like as far as like policy went right i would get if he felt like he needed someone who like did not look like him which is i feel like what biden's doing right now Mm. where he feels like he has to compensate for him being like an old white guy so he has to pick a comparatively younger woman yeah which is not hard to do but uh i think that that he needed to just pick someone from just somewhere more consequential than connecticut yeah. We were talking in 92 when Clinton picked Gore and how weird that was. This was like a southern, southern ticket. Mm-hmm. And how is like the typical strategy for Democrats had been like you pair a northeasterner with like a southerner. This strategy actually sucks. I was like looking back. Do you know how many times it's worked since 1968? Probably zero. Zero. They tried in, in 88, in 2000, 2004, and in 2016, and they've never won. Though they did win the popular vote in two of those. True. This, like, Northeastern Democrat paired with the Southern thing? Th- these aren't the regions you should be worried about, right? Mm-hmm. It's mostly the, the Mountain West and the Midwest mm-hmm. and Florida where these votes are being won on the margin. Yeah. It worked in 1960, though. Yeah, okay, great. <laughs> uh... I do also think there is a broader message here. I agree with you on Cheney. I just think Cheney is kind of a waste of geography and kind of a waste of talent mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or too too much talent. Yeah. It's, it's like you, you could have done something bolder and less evil. Yeah. Right. It, it's it's almost like the sort of open-ended responsibilities of the vice president emboldened Dick Cheney. Yeah. Whereas if you just made him like secretary of state or defense, he would have been in a bit more of a box. Yeah. To be clear, Dick Cheney would become probably the most important vice president of all time. Yes. There's also, you know, we've talked a lot about how Democrats kind of moved to the center and there's this, like, perception that they're out of touch. Mm -hmm. So there's this book that came out in, like, mid-2004, obviously after the 2000 election, but before the 2004 election, by Thomas Frank called What's the Matter with Kansas, so titled after an editorial from 1896 by William Allen White, where White critiqued the progressive movement at the time. And there's like this middle America thing, right? Where it's like Kansas is kind of viewed as like the middle America and it, in like the early 1900s and late 1800s, it was like the hotbed of like progressivism, of like radicalism, right? And it's like, like Wisconsin and Minnesota are very much the same way. And yet somehow all of these states have become so weirdly mundane and red. And he, and he talks about how, you know, when faced with, you know, they're, they're losing their jobs, they're losing money, they're, they're losing security. It's like, back in those days, the average Kansan 
the average American would have responded by making the bastards pay. But it's not really like that anymore. Now, you strip today's Kansas of their job security, they head out to become registered Republicans. You push them off their land, and the next thing you know, they're protesting in front of an abortion clinic. They're squandering their money and their life savings on CEO pay. Mm. And he talks about how this happened. Mm. And he, he notes that the conservative coalition in America is inherently kind of the dominant coalition in the U.S., and it probably has been for a while, probably since the Nixon years, right? But it's composed of, like, two various sides. There's, like, the Republican moderates and the Republican conservatives. And how the conservatives have used the culture wars, which we talked a lot about with Buchanan in, like, the 90s, to serve the Republican elite, you know, business, etc., and the moderates kind of let it happen because it was to their benefit. You know, mm -hmm. even though the less well off, they are ostensibly voting against their own interests. The moderates don't actually care because they're kind of making the money. Mm -hmm. And while I, th I think the book very much paints the Republican Party as to blame for all of this, they also point to the Democrats. It's like the Democrats in this era kind of abandoned the working class to co-opt the Republicans by moving to the center and being like pro-free trade, pro-business, etc. But they differentiated in the GOP by the only way they could by being socially liberal. And it just kind of like drove this wedge on the culture war issues. And it, the book explicitly calls out Clinton, Gore, and Lieberman as Democrats kind of adhering to this belief and style, as like the Democratic Leadership Coalition, mm. this very like new Democrat thing. The big point here is what this eventually builds to, and what we talked a lot about in who Bush could have picked in like the Midwestern votes, is who is the real America? And it's like Republicans kind of capture the culture wars in this era by painting Democrats as like these liberal elites. And they go out to their Starbucks and they drive their Volvos and they think they're better than you. <laughs> I'm describing my mother. <laughs> <laughs> Who is from Kansas, yeah, ironically. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, but it's like Republicans saw themselves as authentic and they mm. pitched themselves to the voters as we are authentic, we are the real party. And the Democrats, they've kind of abandoned what they were, mm -hmm. right? The party of the working class. And I think there's truth to that here, is kind mm -hmm. of my broader point, is instead of Democrats embracing some of the people we said, maybe people be more Midwestern, and they don't really do that anymore. Mm -hmm. It never really happens. Yeah. And the Republicans kind of seize on that and just drive this wedge. So it's interesting because I feel like you're very much a Clinton Democrat. Yeah, oh yeah. So what's your solution to this? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, would, I would identify as like a new Democrat as well. I, I don't know that there's a good one. I just think that this book is highly prescient in a way that I don't think it intended to be at the time. Is mm -hmm. I actually think a lot of the points on like what would happen in the next 10 years after this book kind of fall flat. And the Democrats are going to lose like places like Colorado forever and places like New Mexico forever, mm -hmm. places like Virginia forever. And I don't think that's true is I think there becomes a broader division between like the educated and the uneducated or the right. haves and the have-nots that very much come into play in the 2016 election mm. you know you could say stuff about the overton windows like this all happened because the republicans moved so far to the right that bill clinton had to move all the way to the middle and mm. basically became what was in the 70s a republican mm. what is the solution i don't know i don't know either. <laughs> i wish i had a solution i just yeah. like talking about the book I think the solution, if you're trying to represent the Democratic Party and your presidential ticket is your representation of the party, don't pick someone from the Northeast. Pick someone who represents the other parts of the party mm -hmm. that you are losing and Republicans are somehow gaining even though the Republicans are hurting these people, mm -hmm. right? And that's like the broader point is these people are for some reason turning out to vote for candidates that are going to take their welfare and their jobs away. Mm -hmm. Why? And it's mm -hmm. because the Democrats have kind of ignored them. Yeah. 
it feels like I guess we're getting kind of off base for what this podcast is supposed to be. That's interesting because what, what I do think it is, for whatever reason, the Republicans have just always been better managing the most extreme parts of their party than the Democrats have. Hmm. As far as like culture wars go, right? And, and they're just able to, to, to frame it better, right? They're able to frame it. It's like, well, look, we just like things the way they were and they've always been fine for us. Whereas the more left versus the Democratic Party, you know, people, I think these voters, they've been just like Berkeley, basically. Hmm. They've all college campuses and their fancy pronouns and their safe spaces and things like that. And they view that as like a threat to the American way of life. It's, in a way, it's just easier for Republicans to wrap themselves in the flag. Mm. And I think on some level, it's about Democrats have to find a way to better wrap themselves in the flag. A way to sell the more leftward aspects of their party in more patriotic wrapping. And I think they've done it successfully. I think that's one of the reasons why Obama actually did well mm. is that he governed as a centrist but i think you could argue he ran as a populist the idea is to like run as franklin roosevelt instead of running as Karl marx and like again taking this even further afield it's like i think of like bernie sanders if bernie sanders did not call himself a socialist i think it's very possible he is the democratic nominee in 2020 part of his honestly like a packaging problem and cosmetics has always been such a big part of american party politics yeah. And and I, I think that's where you start. Maybe that's not the end solution, but I think that's where you start. Yeah. Anyway, to bring it full circle, you talked about how the Republicans are good at appealing to people because they just want to put things back to the way they were. Mm-hmm. We, we talked about several picks that are cognizant of that but need to look forward. And I think that's very much the Gore message. It's like, this is the 21st century. I'm sorry. Things have to change. Republicans are going to tell you that they're not going to change, that they can have it back. You can't. I want to help you. I think there's a way that you can be both pro-progress, internationalism, free trade, things that are basically inevitable and still help people. Right. When Democrats have succeeded, they've done it because they've made it right. personal. I think Bill Clinton made it very personal. It's like, your pain is my pain. Like right. Obama really spoke to that too. I don't think that Gore and Lieberman do. Gore's focused on environmentalism countries away. Mm-hmm. I don't know that he or Lieberman really hit on, I'm going to help you. Yeah. Whereas Bush at least made people feel better. Yeah. Isn't that so ironic, too, that George W. Bush had people thought of him as, like, the common man? Yeah. And yet, one of the big reasons why his father lost re-election was because he seemed so out of touch. Yeah. I guess it's just the difference of growing up in Connecticut and growing up in Texas, (laughs) really. It's just such an interesting role reversal. And... In a, in a way, that's like why I also picked John Ashcroft. I think John Ashcroft, from a personality standpoint, probably has more in common with Ted Cruz. John Ashcroft it, it just just feels like a very stern religious conservative, whereas Bush was pretty conservative and very religious. But he came off like a normal person. Yeah. Like a guy who wouldn't write a song called Let the Eagle Soar and perform it at a seminary, right? He was personable, and he yeah. didn't scare people away. And I guess that's part of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about cosmetics. American politics are just so personal. Yeah. And so charisma-based. What I think you say is, is right, where it is just easier to sell something someone knows or thinks they know than it is to sell an unknown, which is what the future is. And I think you can make an argument that Democrats typically sell the future, while Republicans typically sell the past. And, and finding a way to sell the future as a place of opportunity instead of fear and uncertainty. And maybe the past as, as a place of stagnation is where Democrats need to go. I think that's when they've succeeded. Yeah. What a nice thought. <laughs> well... 2000 has been a real doozy yeah. <laughs> uh, but that is our show you can find us everywhere that podcasts are found Spotify, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts 
You can find all of our works on thepostwriter.com, including our Running Mates portal. And in the meantime, I have been Lars Emerson. And I'm Mike Levito. And we will catch you in our next episode on the 2004 race between Bush's Dick Cheney and John Kerry's John Edwards. Which vice presidential winner will go on to shoot someone in the face a couple (laughs) years later? Let's find out.